We are talking today about books and a book about books. It is called Bound to Last. The real story is in the subtitle, 30 Writers on Their Most Cherished Book. In this book edited by Sean Manning, we hear from 30 different marvelous writers, Sean Manning among them. And each of them looks back on their lives and, in a sense, looks on their life's bookshelf and chooses one book which has been especially important to them. And not just the content of that book, but that book itself as an object, a book where they vividly remember how and when they received it or the moment that they purchased it and where it has gone with them and the way in which that book itself, all it contains and as an object, as an artifact, is important to them and has been ever since it belonged to them. Uh, It's a superb concept, and for uh, any of us who love books and read a ton of them and have uh, bulging bookshelves at home, uh, this is a book for you. And uh, it's uh, available in paperback by Dacapo Press, and I'm so excited to have this opportunity to speak with Sean Manning. We spoke once before about a book called Top of the Order, 25 Writers Pick Their Favorite Baseball Player of All Time. Uh, He has also written Rock and Roll Cage Match, Music's Greatest Rivalries, and the show I'll Never Forget, 50 Writers Relive Their Most Memorable Concert-Going Experience. Again, this book is called Bound to Last, 30 Writers on Their Most Cherished Book. And Sean Manning, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Greg, exciting to be here as always. I really do look forward to this. I I need to preface our conversation with... uh, uh, by recounting a moment that occurred on the morning show some months ago, I invited to the program the uh, the head librarian at Carthage College, which is one of our local uh, colleges, and it happens to be where I teach full-time. And uh, the reason I brought this gentleman, Todd Kelly, onto our program was because I had heard the news that uh, a school out east had made the choice of converting its library, that is the school library, entirely over to e-books. I mean, they were going to be essentially taking all of the so-called real books or tangible books off of their shelves and and at least taking a decisive step towards going all electronic. And so I thought it was uh, an uh, an interesting opportunity to uh, to speak with this gentleman Todd Kelly on this on this topic uh, and and exploring uh, what might prompt a, a a school to to think about doing that and and um we had a really interesting wide-ranging conversation but at a couple of different points uh Todd Kelly was talking about tangible books on a bookshelf as artifacts and I remember then and to this day I can so vividly recall how much I bridled at the notion of talking about a real book or a tangible book as an artifact and uh, and, and as much as he explained what he meant I, I couldn't quite <laughs> absorb that or accept that notion your book changed my mind about that I mean it doesn't uh, I mean I I always and always will be a fan of real books, but in a sense, your book helped me understand that notion of how a book can be an artifact, and that that can be a, an important distinction. It isn't something that that uh, diminishes the importance of a book. It's, in a sense, just the opposite. Right, right. I think that's that's uh, kind of a misconception, as people think, because, you know, each book is, is printed in, you know, 10,000, you know, 50,000, 100,000 copies, that 
that uh, they're not individual. But as soon as it, you put that into somebody's hands, uh, that person imbues that book with their own identity and their own life experience, and vice versa. I mean, the whole point of this book was uh, so many times I'd be looking at my bookshelf, and instead of seeing the titles of the books, I would see the places that I had been, where I bought those books, who had given me those books. Uh, you know, they're like they're like photographs of family members. Uh, they just they call to mind uh, so many good times and bad times, and and I think they're they add to your life. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you can hear the disdain in my voice when you're talking about uh, ebooks replacing <laughs> a college library. I want to read just a moment from the book's introduction. Uh, this is, well, actually, we should say that the great Ray Bradbury writes the foreword, but uh, right after it is the introduction, which, frankly, I enjoyed even more. This is one, what you say at one point. Um, you, you talk about, uh, in the opening paragraph, about how exciting it is to uh, you know, open up a brand new book, what that was like back in elementary school. And then you say, you don't get that pushing the buttons or tapping the screen of an e-reader. You don't need a bookmark, which, if you ask me, is one of the device's biggest shortcomings. What are you supposed to do with your postcards and boarding passes, your concert and movie and sporting event stubs, your love notes and flower petals, funeral prayer cards and laminated obituaries? But then that's ultimately what books themselves are. Mementos, keepsakes, mile markers in one's life. Look at the titles in your e-reader's library folder. What's the most you remember about them? How long each took to download? I mean, you're really putting your, 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 your finger right on uh, part of what we lose for all that we might gain from e-books there, there, there is this part of the experience that uh, is drastically diminished. Yeah, and it's it's funny. I was uh, I was speaking with one of the contributors, Julia Glass, the wonderful Julia Glass, uh, National Book Award winner, and she's got a, a terrific essay in this book uh, about a childhood book of her own that she passed on to her children, um, or at least shared with them. She loved it too much to actually put it in, in harm's way with uh, you know their messy fingers and risk willing having pages tear it out, but. But she was. She brought up a good point: is the idea that you know, with, unlike with a uh, old-fashioned book, you can't really pass off an e book on somebody. You know, you can't if they come over to your house for dinner or, or drink. You can't, as they're leaving, shove a book into their hand and say, "You're going to love this. Take it, and we'll talk about it in a couple weeks." I mean, you never do that with your Kindle or your iPad. You know, say, "Oh yeah, go ahead and take that for a couple weeks, and uh, just bring it back when you're done with it." Uh, so I think that's you know, and it's the same thing with the idea of. Being in a college library, I went to a small school in Florida, a small private school, and, and the library was so antiquated. But it was wonderful in the sense that uh, there was so much mystery to it and the sense of discovery. You could just walk you know, aimlessly down these aisles, and all of a sudden a book would kind of call to you off that shelf for no apparent reason. Um, Sigrid Nunez in her essay and, and uh, Francine Prose in her essay especially talks about that idea of, of these books being there uh, when you seem to need them, and I mm-hmm. and I don't think you can get that with a with an ebook. I mean, you really have to with an ebook uh, search. You know, you you have to have a mindset of okay, I'm turning this on. I'm going to read this. It's 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 so much of a passive experience. I feel like right, or 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 it's or it or it requires a certain sort of purposefulness, right? Which sometimes isn't what it's supposed to be about. Boy, you're really bringing out the curmudgeon in me. Now I'm reminded of something <laughs> else that irritates me, and that is. Uh, when we lost the, uh, the the card catalog, which, of course, the typical college right. student doesn't even know what you're talking about. You might as well talk about a butter churn. But uh, one of the things I miss about card catalogs was that you would pull out that drawer 
and then just go flipping through the cards. I mean, like in my case, right. it would be uh, in the old Dewey Decimal System, the, the music books were around the 780s, and otherwise now ML in the new system. But uh, you just, your fingers fly over the, over the cards, and uh, you, you find things that you didn't even realize were there. But yeah. when you pull up a computer screen, you have to go searching with a with a different kind of purposefulness or 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 these titles are not just going to pop up accidentally i mean i have yet to find a computer program uh for libraries that has that sa- same sort of shelf system where you could in a sense uh peruse the shelf just on a computer screen they just aren't set up that way right it's it's you know I think Amazon has been trying to do that with uh, you know you know if you if you try and buy a book on Amazon you know, they re- recommend you three or four different titles and and there there are some times when they'll suggest things that maybe I haven't heard of but I think for the most part they're just suggesting the same book and I think that was a wonderful thing about about libraries about the idea of having you know the the categorization of the Dewey Decimal System and the card catalog is that it would really lead you down these unexpected paths and books that. You know, are you just wonder who is relating book X to book Y? But there was a there was a method to it, and and it it, would, it was very labyrinthine. It's uh, you know I I love that I'm a member here in New York of this of this wonderful old uh, uh, private lending library, and they still use um, stamps on uh, you know like the um, the book due cards that they slide in the back of the back pocket of the book to tell you when the books due. You know, and I use that as a bookmark. There's just something I, I don't know. You know, again, I feel like it does bring out this brings out the luddite in me a little bit. And I and I, as I said in the introduction, I'm not opposed to ebooks. I think that uh, Susan Strait talks in her essay about how it's not a zero sum game. You know, these you know e-readers and and books themselves and and even old fashioned storytelling. All of these things can co- coexist and kind of enhance one another. But uh, but I think the fear is is that uh, it seems like the discussion is all about ebooks replacing books. Um, and, and I'm incredibly opposed to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're speaking with Sean Manning, and we are talking about his book, Bound to Last, 30 Writers on Their Most Cherished Book. Uh, so tell us how you got this idea uh, for this particular book. Well, I think it was a lot like, uh, like the book we discussed before, the baseball book, is that I was just, I was just kind of pissed off about, uh, about things that I was seeing. I mean, with baseball, I was pissed off about steroids and and what I felt, you know, the extraordinary ticket prices and the avaricious of the of the owners, and and with this, it was the same thing. Is you know, especially being in New York, I mean, you, you see on the train uh, all of these Kindles and iPads and so forth. And, and the wonderful thing I love about this city and living here is that uh, was that subway ride where you would see all these different books that people were reading and the covers and the dust jackets of them, and and it was just uh, it was it was very illuminating. Well, you don't have that with a Kindle now or, or anything like that. So I was just kind of bitter and, and upset, and then I just thought, you know, what, what a wonderful way to kind of commemorate the idea that these books are mementos and, and hold such a space, such special place in our lives. It's just very simple ideas to get, uh, you know, 30 writers that I admire and have been a fan of for a, fan of for a long time and, and ask them just to pick a book from their shelf that, that had that significance. And I think that's something that people, when they first hear about the book, they're a little confused. They think it's, it's you know, 30 writers writing about the book that influenced them the most, or the story itself, which, you know, you, you, you try and make that distinction with what you said earlier, but uh, it really is. I mean, in my case, it was a book that I, I've never finished Ulysses, but that copy of that book, it holds such a special place in my life. It reminds me of a, of, of a time I'm incredibly fond of, 
and I think that goes that holds true with all the authors. You know, they might might necessarily be their favorite book, but it's that one book that, as a physical object, it signifies more than any other that they own. Mm. Uh, how did you uh, amass this particular group of writers? You just called them thirty of your favorites. Uh, did you contact thirty and they all said yes, or did you, well, you contact know, was, forty? Or? <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny how these things kind of take on a life of their own. I mean, there was a lot of people that you know they were on top of my list. Obviously, Bradbury being one. I mean, I thought you know if anybody was meant to write a foreword to this, it would be him. So, uh, so I was incredibly lucky to to have him agree to do that. Um, and and authors like Julia Glass. There's there's some authors like Jake Courtney Sullivan who I had read a, a, a essay similar in tone uh, that she had done. I thought it would be a good for a good fit for her. And then there was other authors where the concept of the essay came first. You know, I thought wouldn't it be wonderful to have a book uh, a, a story about uh, a book that was carried in war? Um, that the idea of of a book being carried in rucksack through war and you know, when I think of um, of, a, of a war author, the first person that comes to my mind, contemporary, is Anthony Swalford, uh, who wrote the memoir Jarhead. And so I asked him, and, and he agreed to do it, which was just, it just I mean, I'm still giddy about that. Uh, and then there was the other, I thought, well, you know, it would be great to have somebody write about a book that they had discovered in prison. Um, and it just so happened, I woke up one morning and turned on public television, and there was this author by the name of Louis Ferrante talking about a memoir that he had written, uh, he was a ex-Gambino family enforcer, and uh, and went to jail for eight years um, to uh, federal and state prison. And he was, and as, upon his release, he fell in love with books while he was in prison. And so I, it, again, these things kind of have a life of their own. I I contacted him, and he wrote about the copy of Les Miserables that he read while he was in the Nassau Nassau County Jail. So. You know, I, and I wanted to make it more international. I wanted, you know, I, I wanted to get an Iranian author, so um, I was lucky enough to get Sharia Mandanapur, who's an Iranian in exile living in Boston now, and, and I wanted to get a Chinese author, and so I got Aziz Abin. So, you know, there's this idea of really, it, it is, because it's more of an international theme, I think, especially with Google Books in China, and, you know, really this idea that all these books are going to be cataloged on the Internet and, and that, that, that paper books are going to become obsolete. I think it's a it's a all pervasive problem that that everybody can relate to. It's not just a, you know a North American thing. Hmm. Did everybody fully grasp or easily grasp what you were wanting them to write about? I mean, was this a a carefully crafted invitation, or maybe did it become increasingly more carefully crafted as you as you issued this invitation? No, it was funny because they people really did get it. Um, I didn't have to explain too much, and I think uh, I, I, when I spoke with Julia Glass recently, she had mentioned that idea that you know she gets these authors get so many so many uh, invitations to contribute to anthologies, especially about books. You know, your favorite book or the book that changed your life, and and you know, similar theme. And and when she got this, she understood immediately that that wasn't the question that I was asking. I was asking more about the book, as you said, as an artifact. Um, as something that you always carry with, you'll pass down for generations. It's funny though. Uh, one of the authors, Philip Meyer, who wrote, uh, he's one of the New Yorkers' uh, 20 writers under 40. Um, uh, wrote this incredible novel called American Rust. Uh, but he talks in his essay uh, about for whom the bell tolls about how books are such an advanced technology that we take them for granted. And I thought that was such a beautiful point. Is that you, your iPad or your Kindle or your Nook? I mean, that might last battery life, maybe five years, if you're lucky, um, most likely two or three, whereas a book, I mean, these things last for 
400, 500, I mean, you know, centuries. So that idea that we've, uh, we've had progressed so far uh, that we've really lived with these things for so long that we think that we need to advance and we don't. I thought that was just such a marvelous point. Absolutely. Uh, as I began reading your book, I was reminded of, of one of my most powerful memories involving books, and that is, and I suspect some of our listeners might have this same experience, the uh, elementary school which I attended uh, in Decorah, Iowa, uh, had a program with Scholastic Publishing, and so we would be given an order form every so often with oh, yeah. all kinds of different books that uh, that you could order, and you would take take that home, and you'd have this long wish list, and of course that would perhaps get whittled down in the case of our household because of uh, household finances, but that order would be processed, and then sometime later it Maybe weeks later, it felt like months later, one day we would come back into our, our classroom from recess, and there, neatly piled on each of our desks, would be the books that we had ordered. And, uh, I mean, I still get uh, that same kind of thrill uh, all these years later as I think back to what that was like to walk back into the classroom and the books have arrived Oh yeah, you're. I mean, that I you're giving me chills just thinking about that because we still. I mean, I'm I'm 31 now. We had that when I was in elementary school. I and I can. I mean, exactly what you're describing. I can remember getting that scholastic form, and being so excited. And like you said, going home and you sit down with the parents. Well, you, you know, you only we can only first spend this much. So you got to decide between this book and and this book and. And, like, you know, you, you wait three weeks and you almost forget about it, and then, then all of a sudden, magically, I mean, especially when you're a kid, because you think, you know, you never get mail when you're a kid. The idea of these books being hand-delivered to you in your home room. And, uh, and, and when I was growing up, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you know, we had this uh, Pizza Hut did this Book It program, which is, you know, I can still see the huge, uh, it was almost like an original spreadsheet they had outside our, our third-grade classroom in the hallway uh, at King School in Akron, Ohio. And they had, you know, each each student's name in third grade lined up there. And you, every time you finished a book, you get a star. And, you know, the homeroom with the most stars won a pizza party. But that idea of there being nothing more exciting than reading, um, and that these the books themselves contributed to that. Julia Glass in her essay uh, mentions this book, Roar and More, that she was the first book that she ever bought. She can remember, you know, asking her first book she ever asked her parents to buy after seeing it on Captain Kangaroo. And, and she still has this book, and in the book is her name scrawled in her, you know, six-year-old handwriting. And the idea that, you know, decades later you can still have that, it's just, it's just thrilling to me. We're speaking with Sean Manning, and we're talking about his book, Bound to Last, 30 Writers on Their Most Cherished Book. I want to make sure I ask you this. I'm afraid I'll forget if I don't ask you right now. The, the cover of the book, it, I'm kicking myself that I can't quite place it, but... I believe the the cover of this book is very much patterned after some great classic. It I, is. I can't think of what it is. It's uh, Catcher in the Rye. Of course, of which, course. Uh, it's the, it's, you know, there was two. There's two versions, which is you know the the iconic version. The first edition was the one with the the white and orange with the. I think it was you know it's uh you know the I can't even remember you know the image of the I think it's a lion or some such. Um, and there was that, which is a wonderful illustration. And then there's the, I think it was the school version, which is the one that everybody read in school, which is the maroon jacket with just the plain gold lettering. And so uh, we we went for a pastiche of that uh, because I feel like that that book that book just resonates. You know, like you said, you can you can place it, and even if you don't know the exact book, 
you've seen that somewhere before, which is the whole point. You know, you you can never do that with an e-reader. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the other thing, too, is I hold this book in my hand. It, the, the cover doesn't even close anymore. I mean, because I, <laughs> I have read it very thoroughly and, of course, marked it up. But just the fact that it... The way it sits on the sits on the counter here with the cover flipping open and, right. and curled over a little bit, you know this book has been read, and it's just kind of funny how I mean there's also something to be said about a particularly beautiful looking book that you keep in a sense as pristine as possible right. that's also kind of cool, but on the other hand, it's nice when a book has a lived in quality, and there's right. you know reason number fifty to be suspicious of ebooks exactly. <laughs> and that was funny uh, one of the essays Danielle Trusani, uh who wrote the bestseller angelology uh she uh talks about in her essay on uh Nabokov's speak memory, she talks about being in the bathtub and reading the book in the bathtub, and, and every so often she'd almost get mesmerized by the lines to where the book would start to slowly sink into the water, and the idea of the pages absorbing the water if they're thirsty, um, and, and, you know, how you lay that out to dry. And uh, Victoria Patterson talks also about, in her essay on the collected stories of William Trevor, she talks about taking the book with her to her children's swimming lessons, and, and you know, the book getting splashed as she's watching her, her kids swim, and she's reading the book there, and and uh, so again, like you know, when we you know you turn open these books, and you can still even if you you know Jonathan Miles talks about it in his mother's copy of Ship of Fools, and he opens it up and he can smell his mother even as he's in his cigarette-filled you know smoke-filled desk, uh, you know, ten twenty years and hundreds of miles removed from where he got that book, he can still it still contains his mother's scent, hmm. um, and it, that's just just such a powerful image to me. Right. Speaking of powerful images. Uh, I am reminded of how uh, one of these essays begins. Uh, a writer I'm not familiar with, Anthony Doer or Doer. Right, right. Uh, He's uh, he he just released a wonderful collection of short stories called The Shell Collector, hmm. and uh, he's he's written. Um, he, he's he's I think he's uh, uh, Idaho. He lives in, and uh, he's the um, writer in residence for Idaho, the uh, laureate of Idaho, and. Uh, just an incredibly accomplished novelist and short story writer. I love this essay, and this is how it begins. My parents' drafty two-story house in Ohio contains approximately 43 gazillion books. At least one bookshelf stands in every room. Hardcovers lined neatly along family room built-ins, rows of children's classics in the attic, glossy art books squat on top of sofa tables, literary journals rest face down on a bathroom counter, nightstands, toilet tanks, the pool table. Everything is a bookshelf. An antique hutch in an upstairs bedroom comes particularly to mind. A piece of furniture so overloaded with my mother's ecology textbooks that it looks about to give out, as if to say, come on, no more. I, uh, and, I, and I could go on. He goes on to describe uh, other rooms of his parents' house that are just heavy laden with books. And um, un- until I read that, I hadn't even stopped to think about uh, the house of the future in which uh, we would likely not see scenes like that. Right. I can't right. imagine such a world. I can't imagine such a house. <laughs> and I know, and I think it's funny because especially, uh, you know, living in New York and, and being an apartment dweller, and if anybody can appreciate that idea of space saving, it's me. 
but the thought of not having i mean there's something wonderfully comforting about having those books and you know I, i'm a writer so uh i frequently will just pull a book off the shelf thinking you know looking for a line or looking for some sort of inspiration and, and you know put it back immediately so to have that at, at your fingertips is a wonderful thing but just and, and even in terms of furnishings i mean there's nothing in my opinion there's nothing more beautiful from a decorative standpoint of books. I mean, when you look at the, all those multicolored different spines and the designs, and uh, just aesthetically, there's nothing more pleasing than that. So I think I agree with you. I think it, I think it does harken back to a, a bit of Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. It's funny in one of the uh, one of the introductions. You know, he's written like five introductions, and you know, over the course of the books, books, you know, 75 years or, or 50 years or whatever. Um, and one of the introductions, he mentions the word kindling about books. And one of the other contributors, Alyssa Chappelle, had pointed that out early on when I had asked her if she'd be interested in those projects. She went on this huge rant, which was just hilarious, and, and, and really nailed it in this idea of, you know, everybody, nobody has really pointed out that, you know, the idea of Kindle, the Kindle, the Amazon Kindle, I mean, that is book, it's essentially kindling, firewood, book burning, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious, you know, and I, I think there's all of these coded messages, it's like, you know, hey, let's, yeah, these things are they're just too wonderful to do away with entirely. But again, I do agree with you to her point. It is, it is a great game. I think uh, you know, I am fascinated by the iPad. I think it's it's an incredible device and the and you know, just the idea that this image the pages can flip over, uh, it's fascinating to me. But what I what I read I've tried to read I tried to read Pride and Prejudice on my iPod touch on the subway. And it was the most infuriating experience because for me the biggest thrill of reading is that sense of accomplishment as you flip the pages night after night and you talk about the bookmarks. The idea of seeing your bookmark creep slowly and slowly night after night, seeing the progress that you've made. You know, when, when I'm on my, iP- my iPod, I was just like, I don't even know where the hell I am in this book. <laughs> I could have 10 pages to go. I could have 100 pages to go. I have no clue. Let's stay with Anthony Dewar for a moment. Uh, it was his parents' house that he was describing at the top of his essay. He tells one of my favorite stories in the book. Uh, I, it maybe caught my eye partly because I have a sister who's living in New Zealand right now, and this is where this particular story takes place, where he took a trip uh, to New Zealand, uh, landing in, in, in Auckland, and then uh, going on uh, quite a quite a hiking journey which ends up being terribly rainy and uh, in many ways de- depressing do you recall this story and uh, and what happens next yeah well he talks about you know he he basically he's going on a trip to new zealand i think it's a month or two trip backpacking trip to new zealand by himself which i'm just you know in all of is this this young man who decides you know what what the hell i'm going to go take a backpacking trip to new zealand just because i've never been there before so all he has is a rucksack, and he's he traveled a lot previously to this. So he talks about the idea of you got to find the right travel book, um, and he's scanning his parents' shelves, and this book called The Story and Its Writer jumps out at him, and it's yeah, he dismisses it right away because it's like 800 pages, oilskin pages. It's just a doorstop. The thing is, and uh, but he pulls it just out of curiosity, and put it, and the pages sort of flip open to. Uh, uh, one of uh, the stories from Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio, and it immediately hooks him, and he decides, all right, this is what I'm taking. So he throws that in his rucksack, this you know, this eight-pound book, and takes it to New Zealand, and, and his first, I think, four or five days in New Zealand, it's like he's trapped in a monsoon in his hmm. tent. And, um, and make sure you tell our listeners about the, the meal he tries to cook, because that's <laughs> right, like so the last so straw. Right. So he takes, so he takes, uh, you know, he before he's getting his provisions before he heads off on this camping trip, uh, you know, on, on one of the barrier reefs, 
and uh, he, you know he picks up uh, like two sleeves of Chips Ahoy and some pasta and what he thinks is tomato sauce. And as he's you know it's the pouring down rain, he's in his little tent and he's and he's got his um, his his little stove and he goes to to heat up the pasta and he pours what he thinks is tomato sauce and it turns out to be ketchup. And I'm just thinking, this poor guy, you know, how lonely and miserable and cold and just awful you must be feeling. And yet he decides, he flips open this book, and he just becomes lost in these stories. And he completely forgets where he is. And, you know, two hours later, he opens his tent, it stopped raining, he looks out, and he sees the brightest stars that he's ever seen. Uh, it's just, uh, and, it's, and he talked, you know, then he's writing, talked about writing this story in his office in Idaho and being able to still look at this book and see you know, some of the stains that he had left, the coffee stains, and, and wonder if even, you know, there's 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 dirt on the pages from that trip. It's just fascinating. Absolutely. I And uh, he, he uh, ends his essay this way. What I have learned and relearned all my life, what I learned growing up in a house overspilling with books, what the story and its writer taught me, what I relearned last night reading Harry Potter to my five-year-old sons, is that if you are willing to let yourself go, to fall into the dazzle of well-made sentences, each strung lightly one after the next. If you live with stories, you will never be alone. Yeah, I mean, I read that essay and I'm like, well, I, I can't even write an introduction. I mean, I might as well just... <laughs> all these writers, that's the problem with having such accomplished writers is that, you know, you really don't need to say anything. They've done it all. They've done your work for you. <laughs> we're speaking with Sean Manning, and we're talking about his most recent book, which is called Bound to Last, 30 Writers on Their Most Cherished Book. Uh, the very next chapter features a very gifted writer uh, who I have had the uh, pleasure and honor of interviewing on this program, uh, speaking about his favorite book, Invisible Man. Right, David Adu is, uh, and he, I love his essay because, again, it's about New York. Um, he talks about uh, growing up in the 70s being a NYU student, and, and they still have a few of them as these, these kind of itinerant uh, booksellers. You know, they, they, they set up their card tables on the street, and they just hawk paperbacks, and, and, you know, they have them in these milk crates that they lug out from their beat-down minivans, and and, uh, you know, put them on display, and, and students still come and pick it up. But, but David's got an incredible story about this copy of Invisible Man that he had picked up, picked up uh, from this guy that they used to call the book hustler. And uh, they'd always see him around on their way to the bar, and, and he ended up kind of pitching in and becoming almost this guy's assistant and carted off a copy of Invisible Man that had already been underlined by somebody else. And so he, he, it's a wonderful idea that he tries to, uh, determine who this person was that marked up the book the way he the way this this guy did and it's almost like a detective story and he's trying to you know was this man an architect because of the type of pen that he used or was he an editor himself and if he was an editor then maybe if I pay close attention to what he underlined or what he didn't underline it'll give me some instruction as to my own writing and improve my own writing and then and I love the conclusion of the story because he talks about having the opportunity to meet Ellison uh, Ralph Ellison uh, the book's author. Uh, who taught at NYU at the time, and he and David meets him a couple of times, and he'd always wanted to sign this copy of Invisible Man. I don't want to spoil the ending, but uh, but I love how he he ties that into the author himself. Absolutely, uh, this is one of the things David Haydu says about uh, buying secondhand books, and particularly ones which have been extensively marked. 
Being a lifelong buyer of secondhand books, I have owned countless titles marked up by previous owners, including some previously marked by countless owners. And being a reader rather than a collector, I have passed on or resold a great many of them to be marked again. For years, I browsed the used stacks carefully and tried to avoid getting copies that were heavily inked up. Now when I want a book, I tend to click lazily to eBay or Amazon where information on the interior pages of used books is typically scant or wildly, almost poetically cryptic. When the package containing an old book I've purchased through the web arrives in the mail, I know the pages may hold wondrous surprises. And then he goes on to say, of all the books with past owner's markings that I've ever had, the one that had compelled me the most uh, was a paperback of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. The novel itself had been a favorite of mine since I first read that copy. And the spectral presence of an unknown other reader, one revealable only through inference and visible only through the imagination, has always in my mind been inextricable from the dreamscape of elusive identity that Ellison conjured in his mesmeric prose. I, I really find that so intriguing. And this question, who was this person, this third mind, poked between Ellison's and mine? I love this essay because it gets us thinking about something so ordinary. We start thinking about it in an, in an extraordinary way. Right. And I, and I love that idea of, of somebody communicating to you across decades or, or eras. And you, I mean, that, certainly that wasn't that person's intention when they were marking up the book. They were just marking up things that had resonance for them or that they found insightful or they admired the writing. But when that book falls into someone else's hands, all of these things that you begin to infer about that person and, and conjure about that person, and the, book, the person itself becomes a character. Uh, it is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really cool way to think about communication. And, and again, this idea that uh, that's something that an e-book, you know, you can't mark up an e-book. And again, the idea of it, to ever think that you would, you know, uh, I'm just envisioning a world where, you know, you'd go to a bookstore and pick up a or used bookstore and pick up a used Kindle. I mean, it would never happen. <laughs> you mentioned the fact that you went out of your way to give uh, a bit of international flavor to this uh, collection of essays. Uh, and uh, I'm so glad that you do, because uh, we really read some, some, some powerful uh, stories in, 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 a, in a couple of these chapters, one about the book Das Kapital and the other uh, about uh, Emily Dickinson. Right, right. Uh, the Das Kapital essay, was, uh, I mentioned earlier, is Sherman Danapur. And uh, who uh, is one of the most accomplished Iranian authors uh, living? But he'd been exiled. He's been exiled from Iran for I don't know how many years now. He's he teaches at either uh, Boston uh, University or Harvard, and he writes about his copy of of Das Kapital that he had picked up, you know, right after the revolution, and uh, and and the idea that you know there's these books that were contraband that suddenly he could get his hands on. And, and he picks up this copy of Das Kapital. He's a university student at the time. And he's on his way home, and he gets stopped by the police. And, you know, the, the, there was, again, the, the revolution was just underway. It hadn't, it hadn't succeeded yet. So, so he could have been thrown in jail or worse for, for possessing this, this copy of Das Kapital. And, uh, but the, I love, the, the one thing I love about the essay is the idea that, you know, there's nowhere in the book. I mean, you know, everybody, you know, the, the revolution would be kind of fomented by Marx and, and 
and so everybody knew who this guy was, including you know the the controlling party, and and so to have something on your person written by him would you know who knows what would have happened, um, death perhaps, and so you know the police stop him and they search through his books and he tells them you know he's uh, he's studying economics and but nowhere in the copy of Das Kapital is Marx's names printed. So all you know all this is you know they talked about consumerism and capitalism and everything and. And the police think it's just a textbook, and they wish him well, and he goes on his way. Uh, but he talks later about having to hide this book at a friend's house, and he talks also about joining the, the military and going to fight Iraq. And, uh, and, you know, again, this is years and years later, and, yeah, you know, he's writing this in, in Boston, talking about how this book is most likely still buried in his friend's closet, trying to elude detection. Uh, and which is essentially uh, that was one of the, you know this idea of censorship of books themselves being that powerful that they can topple regimes or you know affect the economy and and the, the idea that they can be passed around and you can make a case for the idea that you know books being on the internet and, you know being able to circulate books in a way that you couldn't have done uh, previously uh, under authoritarian regimes but but I still love that subversiveness of a book being passed to you clandestinely and and you know that just carries so much importance and adds to it absolutely and i think for us living in a place where we do not have to live under the thumb of such fear uh, i mean we appreciate that in a whole different way when we read about somebody forced to part with a book so important to them i really loved julia glass's essay in which she talks about uh a book she loved uh, early in her life called Roar and More. And one of the <laughs> insights she shares in this book that I think is so powerful is when she ponders for the first time decades later, who wrote this book? Who is this Carla Kuskin, other than a name in small print beneath the title of the book I'd owned longer than any other? I'd had this book for so long that I didn't really think of it as having an author. <laughs> and I think that's, I mean, it's, it's obvious that, uh, you know, for, for a, a child is often not going to have any, any notion of, right. of such a thing. And yet it's funny to think about carrying that, that notion way into adulthood. Just share a little bit with our listeners about uh, what Julia Glass ultimately does about this uh, important story or important question that she finally poses and explores. Yeah, this essay is just a powerhouse. And I mean, I would encourage, you know, I'm a reader myself, first and foremost. Um, and as much as I want this book to sell, I mean, I, I uh, this essay is worth the price of admission alone. I mean, it's, and I, I don't want to give too much away because this is really a detective story. Right. Um, she, she, you know, she becomes curious, you know, once I've she, I've asked her to. She, well, actually, it starts with she wanted to include a passage of of this book that meant a lot to her in one of her novels, um, and so she was trying to track down, you know, who owned the, the the permissions to get it, you know, get the approval, and she couldn't she couldn't find this person. And finally, she starts doing some investigating online and discovers that this woman has written over a hundred children's books, um, and and I and I love the line that she says that she's so upset with herself because all of these years she could have been reading more of these books. Had she known, and uh, and she makes the point that unlike you know Jonathan Franzen or adult authors who you know you when their books come out you know whoa you anticipate it you know it's coming out or even you know there's J.K. Rowling but for most children's book authors there doesn't come that that fame 
um, they just kind of come out and you just buy them and because the, you like the cover art or because the story sounds cool, you don't buy them because of the author recognition unless Dr. Seuss. So she makes all of these wonderful points in this, but it, it is ultimately a detective story, and so she ends up tracking this woman down or proceeding to track this woman down. And, uh, and they, they begin somewhat of a correspondence. And, uh, and then as this book's coming out, she writes this essay, and she decides, you know, she still hasn't met her. They're only corresponding by letter. But she decides this would be the perfect opportunity to finally meet her. She'll present her with a copy of the book, inscribed, and then um, and then what she discovers is I don't want to give away the ending, but um, but it's just it's a uh, it's an incredible story. It's it's I've done four anthologies now, and I'm proud of every story that I've that I've kind of birthed in the world. But uh, this one is right up there. It's just uh, it's it's incredible. Absolutely, you made brief mention earlier of of how. Uh how this woman has uh, this book on her shelf, and uh, when you open it up, there in very irregular, childish script is her name, J-U-L-I-E. She writes, I, I had barely learned to write my name when I claimed the book as mine. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how she uh, ends her wonderful essay, which I agree is very, very special. Um, she says, I still own my childhood copies of Goodnight Moon and The Cat in the Hat. I even own a book, The Story of Ping, that my mother owned when she was a child. But I will always see Roar and More as the seed, the instigation of my ever-growing library, which threatens the beams of the house where I now live now, a house built in 1820 for a cabinet maker, not for a little girl who always knew that whatever she grew up to be, anthropologist, artist, novelist, mother. Books would fill her walls, her basement, her attic, every corner of her colorful life, not to mention her heart. Whew. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you, I mean, it's just, you might as well just read these essays. I mean, they say it in ways that are, are more poetic and more insightful than I could ever aspire to be, and I think that, that is, uh, that's the wonderful thing about them is that they're not... It's funny because, you know, you, you don't never know what you're going to get with these essays. But with this book, oddly enough, maybe not so odd when you think about it, um, because books hold such resonance for us. But maybe these, these are the most personal essays that I've ever edited. Um, and they just, they just lay bare, um, whether it be uh, Joyce Mader talking about the relationship with her father, who was an alcoholic. And um, um, I have Karen Green, who is the wife of David Foster Wallace, talking about... Um, uh, the aftermath of his death and, and how she turned to the collected stories of Amy Hempel to cope. Um, Jonathan Miles talks about his mother's um, battle with Alzheimer's and uh, how this book that she owned that she had loved and been looked, had looked forward to and she, can, you know, she can't remember the, the, the strain of the plot now. I, I just think it's, it's, this book is so, um, it means so much to me because I think it, beyond even the idea of the book, the stories themselves hmm. are are devoid, you know, divorced from the idea of the books uh, are really, really gripping. Absolutely, and, uh, and resonant. One of my favorite moments is in um, the very first essay by Jim Shepard, and uh, he. I mean, one of my favorite moments in his essay doesn't really have anything directly to do with books at all. But he talks about going on uh, a metro ride. 
And I'm trying to remember now. Oh, yes. Uh, that's one reason it caught my eye. He, his family was visiting Expo 67 in Montreal, which is something my family did when I was oh. seven years old. But anyway, in riding that metro, this kind of space-agey train of the future, uh, at one of the stops, he he looks out the window. Do you remember what he sees? Well, right. He wanted to. Uh, he was enthralled with these little miniature um, figurines that uh, he had he had seen in the city, or you know, he he'd just been captivated by these things. And then all of a sudden, these doors open, and he sees a whole store, just a you know, uh, floor to ceiling glass. Uh, window filled with these little figurines, and he almost thinks it's a mirage. But it's a small little toy store right there right. at that particular train stop, whatever that train stop happened to be. And then and he, he never, and he never finds it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then and then he doesn't know what that train stop is. And every time they ride the metro after that, he watches for that same toy store. And he never sees it again. I mean, not that he could have maybe even persuaded his folks to <laughs> disembark right. there, but. Uh, all these years later, he remembers that and says, uh, it remains in my psyche as an example of how the world worked. There were amazing things out there, and every so often they appeared in order to be all the more quickly swept away. That's a neat little observation that has, in a sense, very little to do with, with books. But, uh, but that's also part of what this whole experience is like for these writers as they reflect on their most precious books, is that you, you realize that uh, our most precious books say so much about who we are and, and, and where we've been and have done so much to kind of shape the way we see the world. Right, right. And I think that he does, he does a great job of tying that into this, uh, this experience we had where he discovered this used bookstore uh, in New York and happened upon this trove when he was uh, when he was a college professor uh, early starting out. This trove of used books that he had always been hunting for, and he finds this this storehouse. He talks about it. It's like uh, you know at the end of Indiana Jones, uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you know they they that closing shot of this huge storehouse and the Ark of the Covenant is kind of like shoved into this needle in the haystack of all these artifacts, and that's how he feels when he walks into this bookstore. And then he goes back a few weeks later, or about a couple months later it might be, and, and it's gone. The owner has moved out, the store's been locked, nobody knows what's happened to him. Um, and, but I think that the wonderful thing is that he still has those books. And as long as he has those books, every time he looks at them, you know, he'll be reminded of that. And the same holds true for you know, lovers and friends and parents, family members, whoever it may be, you know, somebody that gives you a book. You always have them. Uh, I don't include this in my essay or anywhere in the introduction, but when I was thinking of this, uh, my mother passed away not too long ago, and when I was cleaning out our house in Ohio to put it up for sale, I was going through all of her old books, and uh, well, some of them were a lot, you know, these bodice rippers that she'd inherited from my grandmother, and some of them were, you know, self-help texts of my father who left behind after my parents had been divorced. And, and one of the books, yeah, I was rifling through just because I was just, I, I didn't want to leave anything on a turn in case there was some, something there. That I that I didn't want to throw away, and from the pages of one book fell a postcard that my aunt, who's also deceased, had sent me when I was three years old from Niagara Falls, addressed to me, um, probably the first piece of mail I had ever received personally, um, and that idea that that somebody had used that as a bookmark certainly wasn't me, but uh, that that still existed, that this book had held that for me, uh, and the idea that you know I'm sure people are listening. I mean, books that are filled with those postcards or 
or uh, mementos of things that uh, they really are. They're they're in a way they're they're curios themselves. I mean, they're 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 chess, they're hope chess. Mm. The final word is going to come from Victoria Patterson in her essay where she writes about William Trevor, the collected stories. She says books, especially a great book like William Trevor, the collected stories have the affirming capability of shrinking anxieties, not by ignoring fears and doubts or making light of death or even by appeasing uncertainties, but by witnessing and connecting, letting us know that we are not alone. The book is bound to last. 30 writers on their most cherished book, a paperback from Doc Koppel Press and edited by Sean Manning. Sean Manning, thank you. Greg, thank you. Honor.